Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, so we are going to uh, begin day three this morning. Um, and uh, it's going I was telling Galen and Susie, as I was typing up notes, I was trying to figure out a way to summarize a lot of the stuff that I had. Well, I couldn't figure it out, so I just started copying and pasting. Um, and so don't be surprised. You know, I have three pages of notes, but it's not going to take us like three weeks to get through this stuff. It, it, it's going to take us a little bit of time, but it's not going to take us that long. But I thought it would be better for me to do it this way as opposed to uh, trying to summarize it because eventually I'm going to make these notes available to you in a document that is just sort of a running format. And I thought that would be better. You would have... Uh, prose information instead of like an outline and then you're trying to remember okay what for instance what I started with was rain gauge clock and you're gonna what in the world rain gauge clock what what does that have to do with so rain gauge everybody knows knows what a rain gauge is right it's just a vessel that you put out that that records a, a volume of water what's interesting is if you have a known quantity of water falling as rain over a given amount of of time. Uh, In other words, if you live in an area where it rains, let's say, half an inch a day, you can use a rain gauge as a clock, right? Mm -hmm. If if it rains a half an inch a day and you get six inches of rain, you know how many days have gone by. Uh, What is fascinating is scientists can look at that and figure that out and know that that is a a viable way of measuring time. Uh, But then... We come to another way of measuring time, which is the sedimentary layers. Uh, Think of the Grand Canyon when you have uh, an area that has been eroded and you have these layers. We call them strata. Uh, There's all these different layers that go down. And scientists will tell you that those things have come over billions and billions of years as the layers have built up. Uh, You know, you had certain events that would bring those things. Sometimes it might have been a local flood. Sometimes it might have been rainfall. It might have been a volcanic explosion. might have just been the weathering of earth, whatever. So you have these different layers that build up. In, in farming and agronomy, we call, call them soil horizons. You have these different horizons that go through the soil. You know, you build on rock, right? You drill down to where you can build on rock and then come up through dirt. So, that being said, we can, in essence, use the soil layers as a way to measure time. Um, There is a well-known scientific fact, and that fact is that meteorites come at a fairly frequent time frame. We know how often they come. You know, you guys have seen this on Facebook. It'll say the so-and-so meteorite shower is going to come at... 10 o'clock on Tuesday night. I mean, they know what time it's coming, and they'll tell you the best time for viewing it is between, whatever, 6 and 8 p.m., something like that in the Western Hemisphere. So we have that tracked very well. So one would assume that if the Earth were 4.5 billion years old, you would be able to find meteorite or evidence of meteorite fragments in every layer, every strata 
uh, every layer of stratification. The problem for an evolutionist is that you can't. You can only find it on the very top layer of the Earth's crust, indicating that the Earth is not nearly as old as, as maybe we have thought it is. And so, got a couple of quotes for you I want to read. This is from Robert E. Smith, and I found this interesting because he is a member of the Western Missouri affiliate of the AS, uh, ACLU. So, American Civil Liberties Union, he is Western Missouri. I don't know what that means. Like, apparently, there's an Eastern Missouri affiliate. Um, Obviously, this individual is not going to be a friend of Christianity nor a friend of creation. And he says this, quote, For the past five years, I have closely followed creationist literature and have attended lectures and debates on related issues. Based solely on the scientific arguments pro and con, I have been forced to conclude that scientific creationism is not only a viable theory, but that it has achieved parity with, if not, superiority over the normative theory of biological evolution. He goes on. In practical terms, the past decade of intense activity by scientific creationists has left most evolutionist professors unwilling to debate the creationist professors. Too many of the evolutionists have been publicly humiliated in such debates by their own lack of erudition and by the weakness of their theory. End quote. Isn't it interesting that somebody from the American Civil Liberties Union who will argue in court that my child and your child shouldn't be taught creationism, that's religion in school, uh, will say fairly publicly, he, quoted, he was quoted this in a magazine, say, you know, look, there really isn't a good argument between evolution and creation. There is this general understanding, underlying understanding, uh, that evolution is as much about, uh, I'm going to use this word, they would use a different word, but I'm going to use the word faith. Uh, they have to have faith in the system, that is the, the evolutionary system that they believe in, uh, as opposed to just saying that it is a scientific proof, evidence. Okay. Um, let's see. So, we have this, uh, this idea that comes out of science, that comes out of evolutionary theory, and I have to look at it again. It's called uniformitarianism theory. And this uniformitarian, you know, last week we talked about irreducible complexity and the fact that a system uh, only functions as a system. It's only a good thing, the eye. We, we, I use the the because uh, I'm having problems with my eyes because of allergies this morning, I'll use my eyes again. It only works if you have the eyeball, if you have the eyelid, you have the lens, you have the optic nerve, you have the receptors in the brain to be able to interpret the images. So in other words, if I just develop an eyeball with none of that other stuff, it does me no good whatsoever. The idea of irreducible complexity. Uniformitarianism says this, that things happen just the way they always have. In other words, uh, think of the debate right now about climate. Okay, And I don't know what your persuasion is on what the climate's doing. doesn't matter to me. We're not going to debate it. But just think the way that scientists look at it. They say, whatever the earth is doing right now is what it has done in the past. Right? And so if it's getting warmer, that is a dangerous trend. We've seen it in the past, and we've had these ice ages. 
So it's this, the it's kind of the biblical idea when we read that God is the same today and tomorrow and yesterday. It, science, scientists say the same thing in this idea of uniformitarianism. And when you approach them about this idea of stratification within the Earth's crust, they don't want to talk about that. Because there's no good way to explain why meteorites can only be found in the upper stratification layer and not in the lower ones. It is evidence that the Earth was formed fairly uh, recently ago, about five to 6,000 years. They'll, they'll date that, that layer somewhere between six and 10,000 years old. So it is evidence that the Earth is in that time frame uh, they will talk about fossils that are at lower levels, and we will get some of those things as we go through. Uh, a couple more, couple more things or kind of quotes of somebody that I was reading. Um, so, you know, we talked about the fact that evolutionists believe they have faith. They assume that when they uh, when they subscribe to the theory of, of uniformitarianism that the continual building up of sediment for billions and billions and billions of years is happening, and so therefore that's how we get these strata, or that's how we get these layers. Uh, But obviously, there must be something else going on in that process. Uh, There's another theory, and, and I didn't write this one down, but it's the whole idea that the Earth is in perfect balance. Uh, So think of the Earth as a Mm. Uh, a rubber band ball. You you start you is it? Have you ever done this? You just keep adding rubber bands and keep getting it bigger and bigger. So think of the Earth as that. But here's the challenge: you make your rubber bands are made out of different material. You have really really heavy ones. You have really really light ones. So if you were to take the rubber bands and you used really really light things to make the center of it, and then as you got outside, you put the heavier ones, it's not going to be very balanced. When you spin it, if you get any kind of movement to one side, because the earth is not a complete round ball, it's actually a little bit uh, egg-shaped, if you will. It's a little... So if you had the heavy materials on the outside, the earth would wobble, right? Pretty pretty violently. Uh, It's a pretty big thing. So one of the things that we know is true about the earth is that the heaviest stuff is in the center. We have an iron core... And then as you go out, the material gets lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. Uh, so the scientific theory says you know, that, that the earth is in perfect balance, but they won't tell you why it's in perfect balance. We know why it's in perfect balance, because an intelligent creator said, I have to make this thing in perfect balance because it's going to be hung on nothing. There's actually a psalm. Uh, that talks about that, that, that God hung the North Pole on nothing. Think about that for a moment. The earth is hung in the middle of a vacuum, in the middle of nothingness, and it stays there consistently and constantly. It doesn't move. It's, it is in orbit. It changes its orbit. It changes its axis. But all of that is so that we arrive at the things that we have, seasons and those kinds of things. Uh, with the passage of billions and billions of years, the building up of sediment, it should be true that the sediment has within it meteors at every interval. Uh, this theory assumes two things, continuity and perpetuity. In other words, that it's happening all of the time. 
Well, we know that that's true because they can predict when these meteor showers happen in perpetuity, that it just keeps happening. Uh, thus, the theory of uniformity. Um, you should be able to go down the strata and you should be able to find in this geologic column meteors all throughout uh, this, just like a rain shower that you use to, to measure the age of the Earth. The problem is the meteorite material is only found in the top layer of the Earth's crust. Scientific evidence for the Big Bang comes, becomes more and more theological according to cosmic inflation cosmology. You ask a scientist where all of this stuff in the universe comes from. What answer do they give you? The Big Bang, right? Even made a television show about it. The Big Bang Theory, I think. I don't know. Uh, anyways, uh, the idea is that all of a sudden there was this cataclysmic explosion at some place in the universe, the center of the universe, and everything was thrown outward at such a velocity and speed that it hasn't stopped yet. Uh, basically, uh, that'd be one of Newton's laws, right? You, once you put something in motion, it's not going to stop until you stop it uh, or, or act against You have another force acting against it. But if you ask an evolutionist what immediately precedes the Big Bang, crickets. Because there can be nothing. In order to have true evolution, biological evolution that just happens, you can't have anything immediately prior to. In other words, out of nothingness, you have to have this cataclysmic expansion of the universe. And I would purport to you that that is exactly what we read about last week when it said that God separated the waters that were on the earth from the waters below and he caused this expanse, this, this idea of space to be in between those, he, in a moment, because of his spoken word, he sent elements hurtling through space and created the universe in the time that it takes you and I to take a breath. By his word, he created it. And you'll find this over and over and over again in the creation story where there'll be a statement that when you begin to, to think about it, one is, we'll read about next week, that and he created the stars. The stars are so many that we have a hard time counting them. And, and the Bible simply says, and he created them. You know, just, he went and got a cup of coffee. It, it's about the same. Uh, and, and, and so we read these things that happen in a, a fashion like that. So we have this idea of the Big Bang Theory. Um, and I like this quote, so I'm just going to read this quote. I, I thought it was really fascinating. Science has come to the place where they have to recognize this in speaking of the, the Big Bang Theory. There are scientific clues. They call it the Big Bang Theory. We like to call it the Big God Theory. We know it was a big God. They think it was a Big Bang. World Magazine records this. Scientific evidence for the Big Bang becomes more and more theological according to cosmic inflation cosmology. The idea that the earth or that the universe is constantly expanding. Uh, here in or next week we're going to talk about just how vast the universe is. Um, so we will we will begin to see that. Here's another quote for you. The idea is that somehow the whole universe just went boom and expanded. Greg Easterbrook explains and I quote, the entire universe popped out of a point with no content and no dimensions 
essentially expanding instantaneously to cosmological size. This is now being taught at Stanford, at Massachusetts, MIT, and other top science schools. This explanation of the beginning of the universe bears hunting similarity to the traditional theological idea of creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. Mr. Easterbrook quotes one of the world's top astronomers, Alan Sandage, of the observations of the Carnegie Institution as saying, quote, the Big Bang can only be understood as a miracle. One of the top scientists and teachers and professors says you can only understand the Big Bang as a miracle. Day two was a Big Bang by a big God who instantaneously created the universe, and now we have an unformed Earth. We have an Earth that is in existence, but it's not yet ready to be habitable. Why? Why can't we live on the Earth? We have water on the Earth. Uh, we have light. Why can't we live on the Earth? Okay, there's no food source. No oxygen. No carbon dioxide. I mean, you've got to have no, two of them. No relationship with, with symbiotic relationship with plants. We're missing a big one. What is the, what is the shape of the earth right now? Formless it's formless and void in that it is still covered with water. There are elements below the water, but it's still a ball of water. And in case you're different than me, I don't have gills. Mm -hmm. And we can't breathe water. We need breathable air. We need dry land. So the separation of the water and the dry land has to happen. Um, and so we come to day three. We come to the third day of creation uh, where God is going to finalize this process and make the earth habitable, make it livable. Uh, so we come to Genesis chapter 1, but before you go there, turn to the book of Psalms. Psalm 108. Uh, this is an aside. This is free information. Uh, I don't charge for this. So when you say it is the book of Psalms because it is a collection, but the individual uh, songs or po poetry are called a psalm. It's a singular version of that. Okay? So you don't say Psalms 108, it is Psalm 108. Okay? Like I said, free, free information. Psalm 108. And the reason that we're going to look at this, I want to show you um, three ways in which in the Old Testament the word heaven is used, but it's used in all three different classifications of, of the description you know, we, we, we've talked about this before. When the word heaven is used, we have to determine, because there aren't words for this, is the author talking about the sky? Is he talking about the universe? Or is he talking about the dwelling place of God? Okay? So, Psalm 108, and we're going to look at verse 4. It says, For great is your love higher than the heavens. Wow, look at that. Is he talking about the dwelling place of God? Is he talking about... The sky? Is he talking about the universe? He's talking about all three? Notice, if you have an NIV, uh, I think mine is the, I think this is the old New International Version. This isn't the updated. Uh, you will notice that you have an interpretive translation here, is what we call this. Uh, look at the latter part of verse 
4, for your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Um, the word is the exact same. It's heavens and heavens. But the translators of the NIV have said, we know he's talking about the sky here. He's talking about the, the elements that are surrounding the earth, what we would call the atmosphere. And so he's saying, you, you, great is your love. It's higher than the highest place on earth. What is the highest place on earth? Well, that would be, I think it's the toposphere. Uh, or the stratosphere, you know, the, the outer limits of our, uh, that's, about the same, that's about the place that when we send rocket ships up there, that's where they're orbiting, just outside the, the influence of the oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, all of those gases that are in our atmosphere. And so he is using this then as a uh, a demonstration of how great God's love is. Take, take the biggest thing that you know, which is earth, you know, you stand and you look up in the sky and you see those airplanes way up there, that's a long way up. Matter of fact, sometimes you'll see them so far up, they're going straight, but it looks like they're going straight down towards the earth. Seen that? Because of the curvature of the earth. Okay, turn to uh, Psalm 19. Actually, let's go to Psalm 69 first. Psalm 69, and I will read from verse 34. Let heaven and earth praise him. Oh, here we are again. Heaven and earth. What is he talking about? You keep reading. The seas and all that move in them, for God will save and rebuild the cities. In this case, it becomes fairly evident because of the tag, the phrase, and earth, that he's talking about the opposite of earth. So that would be the universe, right? Heaven and earth. We've seen that before. God created the heavens and the earth. It's a formula used in the Old Testament to describe all that is. Uh, so here we have a case where the author using this word is probably talking about the universe. Could you tell us that reference again? Psalm 69, verse 34. Uh, and the last one is Psalm 19, a very familiar uh, psalm, at least the first verse. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hand. Here again, this is evidence, or it, the author is probably alluding to the universe, uh, We've had this conversation before. I've told you I like to look up at the stars. You go out at night and you see how vast the universe is. And the author of Psalms here is saying, when I look up and I see the vastness of the universe, it displays to me the glory of God. The heavens declare, they shout the glory of God. They shout out how big, how vast, how incredible the the heavens are. Okay, Or how, how uh, big and vast God is. So, with all of that in mind, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. We have this dilemma then, and that is, there are times uh, when the author, Moses, as he's recording this, is going to use the Hebrew word for heavens. He is actually referring to one of three things. He's referring to the sky. He could be referring to the dwelling place of God. 
or he could be referring to the actual universe. And it's up to us to figure out, based on the context, what he's talking about. And it's very important. So last week, we had a case where it said that he, that, uh, he, he created the expanse, is the word that's used. Um, and I'm trying to remember now. I was looking. I think it's might be the New American Standard that does this. It, it translates that sky. It says that he called it the sky. Uh, I know that the NIV uses that uh, translation. If you go to uh, verse 6, it says, And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And, so, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. That is an interpretation. And the NIV, he also uses, ex, instead of expand, the expanse, the vault. The vault, yes. That, so you have the new yeah. uh, new international version. Yeah. Uh, there, there was an update to it in which they went back. The actual word is the word that we most often translate firmament. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't use the word firmament very often. And so it is the idea of a vault, a holding place. Yeah. An empty space, uh, the vastness. So the only reason that I wanted to point this out to, to you is it's important to pick up some of these keys. Now they try to give you the idea that they're doing that. Uh, for instance, if you have a New American Standard, they'll generally put it in italics if they're if the word doesn't appear in the original, and they're adding it or they're interpreting it, they'll put it in italics. The NIV, they'll tend to put it in quotation marks uh, to show you that, that this is something that they have added to this. Okay, Okay. so we come to uh, verse 9, which is the beginning of day 3. Verse 9 begins with our very, very similar and, and predictable phrase, And God said. Uh, don't ever get over those three words. That God speaks, and when God speaks, it happens. Uh, it, it will help you to understand the majesty and the power of the God that is. And God said. His spoken word is more powerful than anything that is. Why does that matter? Well, this is really nothing more than his spoken word in written form, right? There is power in this book that when we read in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will will continue it, he'll perfect it all the way up until the day that Christ appears. That's, you can, you know, you can take that to the bank. It's true. It's going to happen. He will fulfill that. So don't ever get over those three words. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. Let all this water, this mass of water that is over the earth, be gathered into one place. And uh, it goes on, let's see, and says, uh, and let the dry ground appear. Eventually it's going to say, and it was so. It just happened. God said, let all this happen. Now, what I want you to imagine for a moment, uh, all of the water in the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, uh, and all of the great seas, uh, of the of the earth being moved in an instant. 
the cataclysm that must have occurred when that happened. And you had a very, very deep presence of water that had to go, we know because of the uh, Genesis account of the flood, that some of it actually went underground. So we had the opening of caverns, this, this cataclysm that happened. You know, we sit and we look at mountains, we look at hill, the Ozarks, they're not too far from here, and we look at that and we think, wow, that, that's impressive. I wonder how long God had to you know, use his finger to make that happen and squish up the in an instant. Those things came into being. Because God said, let water go into one area and have a boundary around it, and it's going to stay there, it's not going to move, all of that happened. We had these, these, uh, this great chasm, uh, the... How long did it take God to make the Grand Canyon? You know, scientists will tell you millions of, millions of years. Some Christians will tell you it might have taken tens of thousands of years that it can happen, you know, quickly with water. If God moves water in an instant, it can happen in an instant. You think about during the hurricane, you know, you saw those pictures mm-hmm. on Facebook and different places of the hurricane sucking up the water and then... Yeah. Yeah. Pushing the water, you know, as the hurricane's coming in, the wind is so strong that it's pushing the water all the way. So one of the references we're going to speak to when it talks about the dry ground is the crossing at the Red Sea. That word, dry ground, means to be dry or to become dry. And I think what happens here is, is it's the becoming dry. God removes the water from it, and because the, the, the pushing and the, the, the cataclysm is so quick that, that that ground becomes dry instantaneously because he's not only moving the water that's on top of it, he's moving the water that's in it. Um, I, when I talk to farmers and farming groups, they're always amazed when I tell them that in soil, generally speaking, 50% of, it, of, the, of the volume of soil is air, water, those kinds of things. And it becomes saturated when you put more and more water in, it pushes the air out, and it fills up those air gaps, and then you have all this water in it. Water can, or soil can hold a lot of water, right? So imagine if you take all the water off of the elements that are below it, and at the same time God is creating those elements to come together to form different types of soil, and in that time, we have to get the, the water that is in, the, in that, those elements out of it, too, because it would percolate down through. He, he did that in an instant. The, this ground is becoming dry. And I did think of the, the hurricane, how it would push that, the oceans off of normal places that are underwater. And you have people, you guys have seen these videos on Facebook. Have you seen these? It's kind of fascinating. It happened at where Bermuda and Tampa because of the direction that the storm was going, the winds were so fierce that it was pushing the water out of like the bays uh, in these areas. And so that you would have this dock that goes out maybe 50, 100 yards, I don't know. And people are out there jumping off what would normally be underwater. Not, I mean, there's little puddles of water, but it's dry. Yeah, the water's gone. It's, it's been pushed out to sea. Uh, same thing is happening here, only it is God's spoken word. You know, there's no storm that's causing it. It's just God telling it, hey, you go here. And the dry ground is coming. And, and there's a specific thing that happens here. 
let's see, verse 9, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. Because we have this phrase, one place, most theologians look at this, and, and Bible people look at this and say, um, if I use the word Pangea, do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, Pangea is the old, if you think of uh, biology 101, and you had where all the continents fit together, and you know if you turn the United States a certain way and you turn uh, South America a certain way, it fits right into Africa, and, and you can basically bring all these continents together. Well, for the longest time, Christians fought that and said, no, that's not true. That, that's an evolutionary theory. Now we look at it and we say, well, maybe it is true. Uh, that's how you have explanation of having life on every single continent that is the same and then some unique places. The question is, well, how did it all get dispersed? Well, think of the cataclysm that had to happen as you had all this water below the earth and in the flood you had to release all that water from above and below and so you release it all at one time. It breaks the tectonic plates that the continents you know, are on and all of a sudden they move. So, when, when the Bible says that all the water was gathered in one place, I think what that means is you had all the, all the dry ground in one spot, and the rest was water. Okay, And the dry ground then, uh, God, called the, God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. It was all one body of water. It was all one place. It was all in one spot. And... Uh, Generally speaking, we would say the center of that, it's kind of fascinating. If you bring all that stuff together, what ends up being right in the middle of it? The Fertile Crescent. The Fertile Crescent is where we believe the Garden of Eden was. Remember, we have four rivers that are said to come from the Garden of Eden, two of which we know where they are, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Uh, Modern-day Iraq, Iran... Uh, north of the Persian Gulf. If you bring all the continents together in that way, kind of right in the middle of them is going to be the Fertile Crescent. It's amazing. When you begin to put the, key, the pieces together, all of a sudden the Bible becomes truer and truer. We don't need to find ways to make it true. It just becomes true, right? Okay. Yes? And you may be going to talk about this later, but in my mind, just all of this that we've just been discussing happening, there, to me, that explains exactly why there's layers upon yeah. layers upon layers upon layers of different things, you know, that scientists keep discovering, so to speak. When you suck water out of something, you think about a bag, mm-hmm. those vacuum bags that you put clothes in, you know, and you suck all the air out of it and compresses everything. Well, when all the water is sucked up out of the dirt, like you said, it had to be sucked. I mean, that's going to compress things. Mm-hmm. And all of that was just moving around yeah. in there with the water mixed in. Then you suck all the air out, and it's just going to, or all the water out. It's just going to compress all of that yeah. stuff. And, and I'm glad you brought, I was supposed to mention this earlier, and I forgot. So take salt and put it in a glass of water. What happens to the salt? It goes to the bottom. Why does it go to the bottom? It's heavier. It's heavier. There's a word for it. In science, we call it precipitate. It precipitates out. So you can stir that up and get it to go into solution, right? You can get salt water that you can gargle with or you can drink it and make yourself sick if you want. I mean, you can do all kinds of fascinating things with salt. You can put it in your eye, in your nose. (laughs) You can do all kinds of fascinating things with it. If you let it sit, you just let it sit. 
The salt is eventually going to come out of solution and go to the bottom of the glass. Heavier stuff is going to go to the bottom. Isn't it fascinating, when you pulled all the water out of the, the dry ground, iron went to the bottom, and as you go up the various layers uh, of the strata, the heavier material and tends to be on the bottom. Other than right here where we live, you generally don't find limestone right up on top. It's because we have no topsoil. Generally, you find limestone down below. You know, you have to go down. Uh, you've seen pictures of these places where they have <clears throat> these rock quarries and they're, they're big pits, dugout pits, and they're, they're mining. That's limestone. They're, they're mining this limestone. Well, limestone is really nothing more than a bunch of salt, a bunch of calcium carbonate, all put together, it all forms together. What's interesting is in order to make that mix go together, it's kind of like baking soda. You've got to have water. So how in the world did you get all these things to come together and to form this hard solution without the presence of water? The earth had to be covered with water at some point in time to make limestone. That is a scientific fact. We know that. And yet, scientists want to misstate that. They want to say, well, it was formed at, you know, because of a local flood, a regional flood, whatever. To me, what is fascinating is if we will simply learn to trust in the God who was there, who told us the story, uh, we will know the truth, right? Verse 9, And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. Don't ever get over that phrase either. The idea that when God says it, it happens, it is as automatic as the sun rising in the morning. It's more automatic than that because the sun wouldn't rise if God hadn't told it to rise. The earth wouldn't go around the sun and the earth wouldn't rotate if that hadn't happened, right? And it was so. Because God said it, and it was so. Now here's why I, I'm pausing here for that. When God says He is going to, if you trust Him, if you believe, if you have faith, and you are His beloved, and He says that He is going to deliver you into an eternity that is without sin in His presence, and you will be there forever, unharmed, He is going to do it. I don't care what comes against you. That's what causes Paul to write in Romans, you know, what will separate us from the love of God? Will famine? Will nakedness? Will death? All of these things. He can say with confidence... He says, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. If we are beloved, which we are, there is nothing that will separate us. The key is, in this process of Christianity, is to A, examine ourselves to make sure that we are beloved, to make sure that we are in the faith, to make sure that we are listening and understanding His truth. The whole point of this class is we're looking at the creation story to set God up as the authoritative influence in our life. And then we're going to begin to look at how the New Testament writers apply that concept to our everyday life. Okay, So as we go through, what, what difference does it make that God is the creator? That's the fundamental question that we are going to answer. Do not get over uh, seven words, and God said, and it was so. Because those are the fundamental why of this class. Okay? 
Um, verse 10, God called the dry ground land, literally uh, earth. He called it, that's where the, the name comes from, earth. And the gathered waters he called seas, oceans. And God saw that it was good. Notice, this is the first time since God created light that he has looked at his creation and he says, ah, that's good. Now, not good like, oh, that's a good dog, that's a good grandson, that's a good... Workable. It's like a, a tool that is useful, that is, you know, a hammer. Uh, I've got three or four hammers at home. I have one that I like. Because when I hit a nail, I actually hit the nail, not my thumb, not something else. It, you know, the others are kind of bent up, and one of them is way too big. It's a big sledgehammer. It's a shop hammer. So I have one hammer that is good. And it's, in essence, that's what God is saying here. He looked at it and he said, we're getting there. This is good. I can put life here. It's not complete, but it's good. Um, verse 11, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation. Literally, grasses. Flowering grasses is the, what that word means. So, if you ever want to you know why you have to mow your grass and all that stuff, it's because God made grass. Because God has, has made the... Th- and if you ever want to know why it is that you're able to breathe, it's because God made the grasses. Because without them, you wouldn't have oxygen to breathe. Okay? Or at least enough oxygen. Um, then God said, let the land produce vegetation. This is fascinating to me. Let the land produce vegetation. How did we get vegetation in the ocean? still land there, isn't there? It's just wetland. So we have wetland and we have dry land. So God said, let the land produce vegetation. Then he gives us two kinds of classification. Seed-bearing plants and trees. Seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it. Notice he gives us two Uh, distinct classifications here. One is a seed-bearing plant where the seed becomes the food that you eat. These would be herbs. These would be vegetables. Those kinds of things where you actually eat the seed. And then you have the fruit-bearing trees where the, the seed is actually in the fruit. What's the difference between a vegetable and a fruit? Where the seed is, right? Even today, we still classify... Our plant, you know, fruits and vegetables, based on God's creation, based on the way that God created things. Um, So, and God saw that it was good, verse 11, then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. That phrase, according to their kind. Um, tomato plants, if you plant tomato seed, it makes tomatoes. If you plant ryegrass seed, it produces ryegrass. It doesn't produce wheat. Because God designed a genetic code within the seed in order to make that. Now, we can have some variation within that. You might have yellow tomatoes. You might have red tomatoes. You might have, uh, there are purple tomatoes. There are blue tomatoes. But they're all tomatoes. 
You can't plant a tomato seed and make a pepper. Right? So, even within this, we have the, the, the elimination of evolution, the idea of speciation, that you can have two species that somehow will come together and through mutation bring about a new species. We have dogs, beagles, dac, uh, da, uh, dachshunds. Um, what other kind of dogs do you guys have? Collies? Pitbulls, Pit schnauzers, Great Danes. Big dogs. But they're all dogs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you are never going to have a dog-cat mix. Anybody happy about that? <laughs> uh, so you have the after its own kind, the idea that God has created boundaries uh, within this. The other thing that I want you to notice is that when God produced this, He created it mature. It was already, you know, you've been growing pepper plants, tomato plants all summer long. It took all summer long to get to the point where you could pick the fruit and eat it. When God created it, the fruit was ready to go. The seed was there with the copy to make itself so once it fell to the ground, it was going to reproduce. So which came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah. Chicken? God produced a, a chicken with an egg. How's that? <clears throat> God produced... The, not only the mature version, but the ability to reproduce. The ability to remake itself. Okay? Very important. Because people will say, well, what did Adam and Eve eat? You know, if, if they were created in six days, what did they eat? Well, when God created the apple tree, they could pick apples. You could, you could have gone and picked an apple that day. Uh, I, God didn't make any avocados. I don't know where those came from. So. <laughs> Or uh, what are those things, John Gross? Oh, okra. Okra, yeah. God didn't produce okra. <laughs> <laughs> Verse 12. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. So now we have a, a home that is livable, it, is, it has oxygen, it has dry land, it has a food source, we are ready to go. So here's the bad news. When you and I were created, we were created to be vegetarians. Thankfully, Adam and Eve sinned and we get to eat meat. Uh, but we were created as vegetarians, so... Interesting concept to think about that, that uh, when we get to heaven and there is a feast, will there be meat? If there is no death, will there be meat? So when I was a kid, I used to have these thoughts of, man, you know, there's going to be a big, I don't know, goose, turkey, whatever it is. And, and when somebody told me this, I thought, oh, I'm not, I'm not so sure about this. Okay, and there still will be sacrifice in heaven. We do know that. So how we get to sacrifice without death, I'm not sure. That's beyond me. That's above my pay grade, as I like to say at work. But so God has now created the home that you and I live in. What we enjoy, it is done. It is 
it's not complete in the sense that everything is on it, but uh, we have gone through the period of separation where God has created the, the, the individual things and then he separated them so that it's habitable. Uh, but now we have to populate it. Now, what I want you to think about just real quickly is there is a, how do I want to put this? There is a parallel that, that goes on here. So on day one, God creates light. And on day four, God is going to create the lights, the heavenly bodies. On day two, God creates the waters. And on day five, God is going to populate the waters with all of the living creatures that are in them. On day three, God creates the land and the plants. And on day six, God is going to create human beings that are going to tend that. So we have this parallelism that's going on here that there is a purpose for each of those things that is created. And not only that, we have this idea of separation. So here is the first big question that we have to answer. Why does God go through? You know, God could have done what he did, days one, two, and three, in about 13 seconds on day one. Why does he allow morning and evening, day one, morning and evening, day two, these things to go by, and, and do this process that we call the separating process and fashioning. Why does he do that? Any thoughts? It seems like he's setting a precedence for life. Okay. And, I mean, if, if we think about day seven, he rested. If there weren't day one through six, it wouldn't have a context quite the same. Mm-hmm. So, maybe to... Of okay. Living. Okay. Because his his creation purpose is is about how we are going to live our lives. That we will work six days and rest one. Okay, that's very possible. He was thinking of us. Thinking of us. I like from the very beginning. Yeah. How so? How do you mean that? Uh, in the form of him. Yeah. In the form of him, and all these things that needed to be in place before. Mm-hmm. That he would create us. Yeah. We need rest. Yeah. We need that night. I mean, Scripture tells us we need that rest. Yeah. Man's not created to work at night. Yeah. It's during daylight hours. Yeah. That we are. And I think that there is a sense in which he is trying to demonstrate this: the detail, the 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 attention to detail that he is going to provide every single thing that is necessary for life. As a matter of fact, Peter is going to tell us in his epistle that God has given us everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Hmm. Well, I get the life part. That comes in creation. Where does the godliness part come from? His son. The gospel is in the mind of God during creation. Do not ever think of the gospel as a, whoops, what am I going to do now? They sinned. God has known from the beginning, has understood that man is going to fall, and so therefore I need to provide a way. And in order to provide a Savior for mankind, this is a way for God to demonstrate His glory. So when we read in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, it literally is, God put them there to speak His glory to us. 
When God created the oceans, he created it to speak his glory to us. When God created the grasses of the field. I was thinking of this yesterday. I was on my mower. I'm mowing, of all things. And, you know, mowing grass thinking, wow, it's kind of strange. You know, here it is around the 1st of October, and I'm still having to mow. It's just crabgrass, but I'm still having to mow. But the glory of God is demonstrated in my lawn of all things. The grass that is his handiwork that I have to tend, I have to take care of. He has given me purpose in his creation. He has given me a place in his creation. And the same is true of you. And everyone, this is the thing that we miss when we get to the creation story. It's that even in in the preparatory work, we are part of God's idea in that. As he is doing all these things of separating, he's thinking of us. He's thinking of how we are going to be involved, that we are going to be part of this creation and ultimately part of his kingdom, part of his presence. Uh, to me, it is that, that wrestling, you know, when, when we come to this, it's not just an academic exercise to understand, okay, this is what creation is. But it is, in reality, the idea that God is thinking of you and me in this process and trying to make sure that we understand. And he's a God of order. I mean, he is a God of order. And in creating order, when our lives get out of balance or when chaos comes, we are drawn back to that order. And... um, he created, I mean, in creation, just creating that idea, everything follows a pattern. He, and also, he's constant. He's never changed. You know, he's always there. There is a predictability. And when when we are out of sync, mm-hmm. we feel that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking mm-hmm. a lot deeper than I'm able to get it out mm-hmm. of my mouth. But it's it's that sense of, an intrinsic, you know, I'm out of sync with something. Yeah. And, and the idea that there is purpose. Think of how many people live their lives purposelessness with the idea that, you know, I get up, I go, I work, I do what I do. And I don't know why I do what I do. I simply just do it. If there's anything that you and I should understand it is that we have purpose and focus. When Paul says, everything that you do, do it to the glory of God. That is not a trite statement just saying, do it happy. You know, what he's saying is, you have the opportunity to participate in demonstrating the glory of God in what you do. So if you teach, if you are retired, if you uh, teach... I don't know what everybody else does in here. If you're an agronomist, do it in such a way that you display the glory of God in that process. To me, that's a daily goal. Yes. That's the daily goal that eventually gets us to the promise yeah. of reward. Mm-hmm. And if we didn't do that and exercise that relationship with God to give Him the glory... We would have nothing. Yeah, yeah. 
You're absolutely right. And you think that uh, if our identity comes from our Creator, you know, I think about our families mm-hmm. and how, you know, you, you know, we have certain values that as the Smiths we want to instill in our children. And if, if our identity doesn't come from our Creator, we're lost in creating mm-hmm. our own identity. Mm-hmm. I think we see a world full of people who want to create their own identity as separated from the one who created them. Yeah. And that's why we see so much despair and hopelessness and purposelessness because they're not looking to the one who created mm-hmm. them to understand why they were created. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's just, it's so basic and yet so incredibly profound when we miss that mark. Mm-hmm. It really throws, skews the rest of our interpretation of life. Think of how many college students have dropped out of college so they can quote unquote go find themselves. Mm-hmm. When in reality, they have been found. They just need to acknowledge it. Uh, that, that whole idea of we suppress the truth about who we are and why we are in order to suppress God. Because we don't want God to be... It, everything comes back to this concept of godlessness and the fact that we don't want God to be the authoritative influence in our lives. Um, you and I should be the epitome of the opposite of that. Um, that we are the standard bearers, the, the ones that hold high the light that says this is what it means to be the creation of a creator. This is what it means to live with purpose. Right? Right? And we'll see that as we continue through our study. Let's, uh, let's pray, and we will. Uh, you have your charge for next week, I think, on the... I don't even remember what it is, but <clears throat> it's on there. That's how good of a teacher I am. God, we thank you um, for your attention to detail as you have demonstrated your love towards us. Uh, you have given us meaning uh, when... Outside of ourselves, we would have no meaning. Although you have made us thoughtful, rational creatures, you have given us the very thought that, it, that should consume our lives, and that thought is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would learn to love him, to know him, and to become like him as your spirit energizes us in that process. Thank you for just who you are and what you are doing. Thank you for your immenseness. Mm-hmm. Uh, just how how big you are and how powerful you are, how when you spoke these things, they happened at at merely the the uh, response of your word, God. Thank you for being you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.